Chapters seven and eight of Love's Bitterest Cup by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter seven. The Earl of Enderby. Washington City in the month of September is very quiet and sleepy. The torrid heat of the summer is passing away, but has not passed. It returns in hot waves when the incense of its burning seems to rise to the heaven. No one goes out in the sun who is not obliged to go, or does anything else he or she is not obliged to do. The forces lived quietly in their city home during this month, neither making nor receiving calls. The subject of Colonel Anglesea's death and of Lee's return very naturally occupied much of their thought. Lee was expected home at the end of the three years' voyage. Then, or thereabouts, no one knew exactly the day or even the week. Letters notifying him of the death of Angus Anglesea were promptly written to him by every member of the family. So eager were they all to convey the news and express themselves on the subject. Even little Elva wrote, and her letter contained a characteristic paragraph. I am almost afraid it is a sin to be so very glad, as I am that Odalite is now entirely free from the fear that has haunted her and oppressed her spirits and darkened her mind for nearly three years. I cannot help feeling glad when I see Odalite looking so bright, happy, and hopeful, just as she used to look before that man bewitched her. But I know I ought to be sorry for him, and indeed I am just a little. Maybe he couldn't help being bad. Maybe he didn't have Christian parents. I do hope he repented and found grace before he died. But Rosemary shakes her head and sighs over him. But then, you know, Rosemary is such a solemn little thing over anything serious, though she can be funny enough at times. Oh, how I wish it was lawful to pray for the dead. Then I would pray for that man every hour in the day. And now I will tell you a secret, or make you a confession. I do pray for him every night. And then I pray to the Lord that if it is a sin for me to pray for the dead, he will forgive me for praying for that man. O oh, Lee, how we that call ourselves Christians should try to save sinners while they live. It was on a Saturday, near the middle of October, when answering letters came from Lee, a large packet, directed to Mr. Force, but containing letters for each one. They were jubilant letters, filled full of life and love and hope. Not one regret for the dead man. Not one hope that he had repented and found grace, as little Elva expressed it. Clearly, Lee was one of those Christians who can rejoice in the just perdition of the lost. His ship was at Rio Janeiro on her return voyage, he wrote, and he expected to be home to eat his Christmas dinner with the uncle, aunt, and cousins, who were soon to be his father, mother, wife, and sisters. The New Year's wedding, that was to have come off three years ago, should be celebrated on the coming New Year with more eclat than had ever attended a wedding before. Now he would resign from the Navy and settle down with his dear Odalite at Greenbushes, where it would be in no man's power to disturb their peace. Lee wrote in very much the same vein to every member of the family, for, as has been seen in the first part of this story, there never was such a frank, simple, and confiding pair of lovers as these two, who had been brought up together, and whose letters were read by father, mother, and sisters, aunt, uncle, and cousins. To Elva, in addition to other things, he wrote, Don't trouble your gentle heart about the fate of Anglesea. Leave him to the Lord. No man is ever removed from this earth until it is best for him and everybody else that he should go. Then he goes, and he cannot go before. That is all very well to say, murmured poor Elva. 
but all the same, when I remember how much I wished, something would happen to him, for Odalite's sake. I cannot help feeling as if I had somehow helped to kill him. Well, perhaps you did, said Wynnette. I believe the most gentle and tender angels are all unconsciously the most terrible destroyers of the evil. I have read somewhere or other that the most malignant and furious demon from the deepest pit will turn tail, and— no, I mean will fly, howling in pain, wrath, and terror, from before the face of a naked infant. Ah, there are wonderful influences in the invisible world around us. You may have been his Uriel. But I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be, said Elva, almost in tears. No, you didn't want to be while you were awake and in your natural state. But how do you know now what you wanted to be when you were asleep and in your spiritual condition? Elva opened her large blue eyes with such amazement that Wynnette burst out laughing. And nothing more was said on the subject at that time, because Mr. Force, who had left a pile of other unopened letters on the table while they read and discussed Lee's, now took up one from the pile, looked at it, and exclaimed, "'Why, Elfrida, my dear, here is a letter from England for you. It is sealed with the Enderby crest, from your brother, no doubt.' "'The first I have had for years,' said the lady, as she took the letter from her husband's hands. It was directed in the style that would have been used had the Earl's sister lived in England. Lady Elfrida Force, Mondrier, Maryland, U.S. It had been forwarded from the country post office to the city. Elfrida opened it and read, "'Enderby Castle, October 1st, 18 blank. "'My dear and only sister,' I have no apology to offer you for my long neglect of your regular letters, except that of the sad vis inertia of the confirmed invalid, that I know you will accept with charity and sympathy. I am lower in health, strength, and spirits than ever before. I employ an amanuensis to write all my letters except those to you. I shrink from having a stranger intermeddling with a correspondence between an only brother and sister— and so, because I was not able to write with my own hand, your letters have been unanswered. In none of them, however, have you mentioned any present or prospective establishment of any of your girls, except that, years ago, you spoke of an early, very early betrothal of your eldest daughter to a young naval officer. You have not alluded to that arrangement lately. Has that come to nothing? It was scarcely a match befitting one who will some day, should she live, be my successor here." Your girls must have grown up in all these years. Let us see, Odalite must be nineteen, Wynnette seventeen, and little Elva fifteen. Two of them, therefore, must be marriageable, according to Maryland notions. Write and tell me all about them, and tell me whether you will come into my views that I am about to open to you. I am lonely, very lonely, not having a near relative in the world, except yourself and your family. I want you all to come over and make me a long visit— and then try to make up your minds to the magnanimity of leaving one of your girls with me for so long as I may have to live, or, if one girl would feel lonesome, leave two to keep each other company. You and your husband might be quite happy with one daughter at home. So I think, what do you? My plan may be only the selfish wish of a chronic sufferer who is nearly always sure to be an egotist. Consult your husband and write to me. Give my love to my nieces, and kindest regards to Mr. Force." and believe me, ever, dear Elfrida, your affectionate brother, Enderby. Mrs. Force, having read the letter to herself, passed it over without a word of comment to her husband. 
Mr. Force also read it in silence, and then returned it to his wife, saying, "'This matter requires mature deliberation. We will think over it to-night and decide to-morrow. "'Or, as to-morrow is the Sabbath, we will write and give my brother our answer on Monday,' amended the lady. "'Yes, that will be better. It will give us more time to mature our plans,' assented Mr. Force. "'What is it?' inquired Wynnette, drawing near her parents.' while Alva and Rosemary looked the interest that they did not put into words. "'A letter from your Uncle Enderby, my dears, inviting us all to come over and make him a long visit.' "'Oh, that would be delightful, Mamma. Can we not go?' eagerly inquired Wynnette. "'Perhaps. You will all graduate at the end of this current term, and then, perhaps, we can go with advantage, but not before.' "'Oh, that will be joyful, joyful, joyful,' sang Wynnette, in the words of a revival hymn. "'But what will Lee and Odalite do?' inquired little Elva, who always thought of everybody. "'Why, if Lee and Odalite are to be married in January, they can go over there for the bridal trip, you know,' said Wynnette. "'They will have to go somewhere on a wedding tour. All brides and grooms have to. And the reason why is because for the first few weeks after marriage they are such insupportable idiots that no human beings can possibly endure their presence. My private opinion is that they ought to be sent to a lunatic asylum to spend the honeymoon.' but as that cannot be done, we can send our poor idiots over to Uncle Enderby. Maybe by the time they have crossed the ocean, seasickness may have brought them to their senses. "'Thank you for myself and Lee,' said Odalite, laughing. "'Without joking, I really think your plan is a good one,' said Mrs. Force. "'Whether we all follow in June or not, it will be an acceptable attention to my brother to send our son and daughter over to spend their honeymoon at Enderby Castle.' There was more conversation that need not be reported here, except to say that all agreed to the plan of the wedding trip. On the following Monday, Mr. and Mrs. Force, having come to a decision, wrote a joint letter to the Earl of Enderby, cordially thanking him for his invitation, gladly accepting it, and explaining that the marriage of their daughter, Odalite, with Mr. Leonidas Force, would probably come off in January, after which the young pair would sail for England on a visit to Enderby Castle that if all should go well, after the two younger girls should have graduated from their academy, the whole family would follow in June and join at the castle. It would be curious, at the moment we close a letter to some distant friend, could we look in and see what, at that moment, that friend might be doing. At the instant that Mr. Force sealed the envelope to the Earl of Enderby, could he have been clairvoyant, he might have looked in upon the library of Enderby Castle, and seen the sunset light streaming through a richly stained oriel window upon the thin, pale, patrician face and form of a man of middle age, who sat wrapped in an Indian silk dressing-gown, reclining in a deeply cushioned easy-chair, and reading a newspaper, the London Evening Telegram. And this is what the Earl of Enderby read. We take pleasure in announcing that Colonel the Honorable Angus Anglesia has been appointed Deputy Lieutenant Governor of the County. CHAPTER Eight: ANTICIPATIONS With the assembling of Congress, in the first week of December, the usual crowd of officials, pleasure-seekers, fortune-hunters, adventurers, and adventuresses poured into Washington. Hotels, boarding-houses, and private dwellings were full. The serious business of fashion and the light recreation of legislation began. Mr. Force went down to the Capitol every day to listen to the disputes in the House or in the Senate. Mrs. Force and Odalite drove out to call on such of their friends and acquaintances as had arrived in the city, 
and to leave cards for the elder lady's day, the Wednesday of each week during the season. Letters came from Lee. His ship was still delayed for an indefinite time at Rio de Janeiro, waiting sailing orders which seemed to be slow in coming. Lee's letters betrayed the fact that he was fretting and fuming over the delay. "'Don't know what the Navy Department means,' he wrote, "'keeping us here for no conceivable purpose under the sun. "'But I know what I mean. "'I mean to resign as soon as ever I get home. "'If there should come a war, I will serve my country, of course. "'But in these piping times of peace, "'I will not stay in the service to be anybody's nigger, "'even Uncle Sam's.' "'Odalite, Wynnette, and Elva cheered him up with frequent letters.' Christmas is rather a quiet interlude in the gay life of Washington. Congress adjourns until after the new year. Most of the government officials, members of the administration and of both houses of Congress, and many of the Civil Service Brigade, leave the city to spend their holidays in their distant homesteads. In fact, there is an exodus until after New Year. The gay season in Washington does not really begin until after the first of January. The public receptions by the President and by the members of the Cabinet take the initiative. Then follow receptions by members of the Diplomatic Corps, by prominent Senators and Representatives, and by wealthy or distinguished private citizens. Mr., Mrs., and Miss Force went everywhere, and received everybody, within the limits of their social circle. Odalite, for the first time in her short life, enjoyed society with a real, youthful zest. There was no drawback now. Her mother's deadly enemy had passed to his account, and could trouble her no more, she thought. Lee was coming home, and they were to be married soon, and go to Europe, and see all the beauties and splendors and glories of the old world, which she so longed to view. They were to sojourn in the old ancestral English home, which had been the scene of her mother's childhood. Ah, and the scene of so many exploits of her ancestors. Sieges, defenses, captures, recoveries, confiscations by this ruler— restorations by that, events which had passed into history and helped to make it. She would see London, wonderful, mighty London, St. Paul's, the Tower, oh, and Paris, and the old Louvre, Rome, St. Peter's, the Colosseum, the Catacombs, places which the facilities of modern travel have made as common as a market-house to most of the educated world, but which, to this imaginative country girl, were holy ground, sacred monuments, wonderful, most wonderful relics of a long-since-dead and gone world. And Lee would be her companion in all these profound enjoyments. And after all, they should return home and settle down at Greenbushes, never to part again, but to be near neighbors to father, mother, sisters, and friends, to give and receive all manner of neighborly kindnesses, courtesies, and hospitalities. Odalite's heart was as full of happy thoughts as is a hive of honeybees, her happiness beamed from her face, shining on all who approached her. If Odalite had been admired during the two past seasons when she was pale, quiet, and depressed, how much more was she admired now in her fair, blooming beauty that seemed to bring sunshine, life, and light into every room she entered? Mrs. Force felt all a mother's pride in the social success of her daughter. But to Odalite herself, the proudest and happiest day of the whole season— was that on which she received a letter from Lee, announcing his immediate return home. This letter, he wrote, will go by the steamer that leaves this port on the 13th of January. We have our sailing orders for the 1st of February. On that day we leave this blessed port homeward bound. Winds and waves propitious, we shall arrive early in March. 
and then, and then Odalite. And then the faithful lover and prospective bridegroom went off into the extravagances that were to be expected, even of him. Odalite received this letter on the 1st of February, and knew that on that day Lee had sailed homeward bound. "'He will be here sometime in the first week of March,' said Mrs. Force, in talking over the letter with her daughter. "'Congress will have adjourned by the 4th. All strangers will have left. The city will be quiet. It will be in the midst of Lent also.' I think, Odalite, that under all the circumstances, we had better have a very private wedding, here in our city home, with none but our family and most intimate friends present. Then you and Lee will sail for Europe, make the grand tour, and after that shall be finished. Go to my brother at Enderby Castle, where we, your father and sisters, and myself, will join you in the autumn. What do you think? "'I think as you do, Mamma, and would much prefer the marriage to be as quiet as possible,' Odalite assented. "'After you and Lee leave us, we shall still remain in the city until the girls have graduated. Then we will go down to the dear old home for a few weeks, and then sail for Liverpool to join you at Enderby Castle.' "'That is an enchanting program, Mamma. Oh, I hope we may be able to carry it through,' exclaimed Odalite. "'There is no reason in the world why we should not, my dear,' replied the lady." Odalite sighed, with a presentiment of evil which she could neither comprehend nor banish. "'And now,' said her mother, "'I must sit down and write to Mrs. Anglesia and to Mr. Copp. The house at Mondreer will need to be prepared for us. It wanted repairs badly enough when we left it. It must be in a worse condition now, so I must write at once to give them time enough to have the work done well.' And she retired to her own room to go about her task." When Wynnette, Elva, and Rosemary came home in the afternoon, and heard that Lee had sailed from Rio de Janeiro, and would certainly be home early in March, they were wild with delight. When upon much cross-examination of Odalite, they found out that the marriage of the young lovers was to be quietly performed in the parlor of their father's house, and that the newly married pair would immediately sail for Europe in advance of the family, who were to join them at Enderby Castle later on. Their ecstasies took form strongly suggestive of Darwin's theory concerning the origin of the species. In other words, they danced and capered over all the drawing-room. "'We want Rosemary to go with us, Papa dear,' said Elva. "'We must have Rosemary to go with us, you know, Mamma," added Wynnette. "'That is not for us to say,' replied Mr. Force. "'It is a question for her mother and her aunt,' added Mrs. Force. But the little girls did not yield the point.' Rosemary's three years' association with them had made her as dear to Wynnette and Elva as a little sister, and when they found out that Rosemary was heartbroken at the prospect of parting from them, and wild to accompany them, they stuck to their point with the pertinacity of little terriers. Now what could Abel Force, the kindest-hearted man on the face of the earth, perhaps, do but yield to the children's innocent desire? He wrote to Mrs. Hedge and to Miss Grandier, proposing to those ladies to take Rosemary with his daughters to Europe, to give her the educational advantage of the tour. In due time came the answer of the sisters, full of surprise and gratitude for the generous offer, which they accepted in the simple spirit in which it was made. And when Wynnette, Elva, and Rosemary were informed of the decision, there were not three happier girls in the whole world than themselves. The same mail brought a letter from the housekeeper at Mondreer, who was ever a very punctual correspondent. She informed Mrs. Force that such internal improvements as might be made in bad weather were already progressing at Mondreer, 
that all the bedsteads were down and all the carpets up. The floors had been scrubbed, and the windows and painting washed, and the calciminers were at work. But she wanted to know immediately, if Mrs. Force pleased, what that news was that she was saving for a personal interview. If it concerned her own beat, she would like to know it at once. "'Why, I thought you had told her, Mama," said Odalite, when she had read this letter. "'No, my dear, I did not wish to excite any new talk of Angus Anglesia until you and Lee should be married and off to Europe. I shrink from the subject, Odalite. I am sorry now that I hinted to the woman having anything to tell her. But, Mama, ought she not be told that he is dead? He has been dead to her since he left her. In good time she shall know that he is dead to us also.' And, my dear, remember that he was not her husband after all, but—oh, don't finish that sentence, Mamma. What will Lee say? sighed Odalite. Nothing. This will make no difference to you or to Lee. That ceremony performed at all faith three years ago, whether legal or illegal, was certainly incomplete. The marriage rites arrested before the registry was made. You have never seen or spoken to the would-be bridegroom since that hour. "'and now the man is dead, and you are free, even if you were ever bound. "'Let us hear no more on that subject, my dear. "'Now I shall have to answer this letter. "'And, as I have been so unlucky as to have raised the woman's suspicions "'and set her to talking, I must tell her the facts, I suppose. "'And, as for her sake as well as for our own, "'I choose to consider her the widow of Angus Anglesia. "'I shall send with the letter a widow's outfit,' concluded the lady, "'as she left the room.' The whole remainder of that day was spent by Mrs. Force in driving along Pennsylvania Avenue and up 7th Street, selecting from the best stores an appropriate outfit in morning goods for the colonel's widow. These were all sent home in the evening, carefully packed in a large deal box, which, with a letter at its bottom, was dispatched by express to Mrs. Angus Anglesia, Charlotte Hall, Maryland. End of chapter 8